Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. At the onset of the pandemic in 2020, my AEI colleague Stan Voyer told me we needed to support businesses until the U.S. economy could rebound. Two and a half years later, how have we fared? Dr. Voyer is back to discuss our fiscal response to the pandemic, the Fed's tricky task of cooling inflation without causing a recession, and more. Stan is a senior fellow in economic policy studies here at the American Enterprise Institute. Stan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. I'm delighted to be back. Uh, Let me read something I just got in a note from a uh, major financial firm. Quote, the U.S. economy is struggling with painfully high inflation and rising interest rates as the Federal Reserve works aggressively to quell the wage and price pressures. As rates surge higher, financial conditions are tightening, the bear market in stocks is intensifying, mortgage rates have more than doubled, corporate credit spreads are widening, and the value of the dollar is soaring against most currencies. That sounds like we are in a sticky situation. How worried should I be? Well, a little bit worried, I think, though that summary from the unnamed major financial institution. That's powerful. I think uh, leaves out some of the more positive aspects of the current economic moment, uh, perhaps intentionally, of course, because this is trying to set the stage for a downcast <laughs> message. But, for example, we are still at full employment, basically, mm-hmm. uh, below below 4%. Um, output has not cratered, I think. right? It's maybe a little down in Q1 and Q2, maybe... Maybe it'll be down a little bit or up a little bit in Q3, but certainly not uh, falling apart. Um, I think um, most households are still in, in an okay financial position. So a, lot of, maybe, a lot of savings. Yeah, yeah, a little less than we, maybe we thought or maybe less than a year ago, but still in a pretty good spot. And so I think all those things should give us uh, hope. There are some other labor market indicators that are quite strong. There's still lots of vacancies out there. Um, and so, you know, I think it's it's not as bad perhaps as that summary would lead you uh, to believe, but, uh, you know, I think it uh, warrants perhaps a slightly negative outlook more than uh, a negative assessment of the current situation. Of all those things I mentioned, it's probably inflation is perhaps and how we're reacting to inflation is perhaps the the most important part. Who's to blame for that inflation? Is it the Putin invasion? Is it just the aftermath of the pandemic messing with supply change? Is it our fiscal response to the pandemic? It's certainly a level of inflation I don't think people were predicting in 2020 as a pandemic started as a, as a, as a possible outcome. So is it is it a multi-causal thing? Or? Well, yeah, I th- do think as, as, most, as, as most phenomena in social science, I think it's a multi-causal thing. But so let's go back to, to the beginning of the pandemic. Of course, back then, People were very concerned about output cratering, about a, a recession, if not a depression right. in, many, in many forecasts. And you would normally expect that to be accompanied by deflation, not, not inflation. Uh, certainly after the long period of relatively low rates of inflation that preceded the pandemic. Now, uh, those forecasts, of course, were based on what had been going on plus the pandemic, not on the extraordinary policy response to the pandemic, which I think uh, is, is what explains the place we're, we're currently 
in more than anything else, right? And that's a combination of fiscal and monetary policy. I would say, you know, first order uh, responsible side is the monetary authority, um, Federal Reserve, uh, which I think acted a little bit too late, but of course in an unprecedented situation uh, that made it hard to, to know what was going to happen. And they were really making policy I think on the fly, perhaps a little too cautious, maybe a little too much with the mindset of the pre-pandemic period of the Great Recession reflected in the, in the new framework they adopted uh, after the pandemic had started. Their average inflation targeting framework, I think very unfortunately timed and, and really something that, that didn't make a ton of sense anymore when they did it. Then secondly, fiscal policy, of course, plays a role. I don't think we usually uh, see the price level of the price level as uh, setting the price level as the responsibility of fiscal policymakers. But of course, fiscal policymakers can make the task of the monetary authority more difficult. And I do think that's what that's what happened here. I think the uh, the two final support uh, bills. Uh, during during the during the height of the pandemic, really overshot their their target. The American I Rescue think, Plan. And the, right at, is that the the one at the end of the Trump administration, which is I think nine hundred billion, and then early in the Biden administration, which is about two trillion. That's right. So that's that's three trillion dollars of a fairly even though the money doesn't get spent right away, pretty sizable. That's right. And I think you know at, at the time again, you know, it's hard to <clears throat> predict what was going to happen, but a lot of the main components of those bills, I think, were, at, even at the time, didn't make a ton of sense, right? So you could argue for, look, this is an extraordinary moment. There are certain things we would like to see happen that we would like to change structurally. Um, but the amount of, for example, additional support to state local governments, the sizable checks that were included in those bills, I think those didn't make sense at the time, even on micro grounds, let alone on, let alone on, on more macro grounds. And so I think those were, were definitely policy mistakes. Then, of course, there's a bunch of supply-side factors that, that matters. You mentioned, of course, COVID itself. You mentioned supply chain issues. You mentioned uh, Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine. I think those all are important, maybe a little less important now in the U.S. than they were previously. But they also, again, make the work of the monetary authority much harder because it makes it more difficult to distinguish between what is driven by aggregate demand, what are temporary factors, what are permanent factors, what is supply? What is demand? You know, the, the fact that in a novel situation, there were then these very new complications, I think made their made their task even harder. Uh, I do think that in the U.S., those sectors, th those factors are no longer of particular importance, right? So if you, you know, for a while, people were sort of chopping up the CPI into different components and right. trying to get to a number that was 3%, right? That, right. Uh, the trimmed, you know, whatever, and the drop, uh, you, you would drop everything that had anything to do with, uh, with COVID or with the healthcare industry or with uh, timber or whatever. Right? So <laughs> people try to come up with it and then they say, no, no, actually it's only 3%. Right? That I don't <laughs> think makes any sense anymore. Um, that's different from the situation in Europe where you, of course, have this recent massive shock to energy prices from the uh, from the invasion of Ukraine and the, the sort of escalating war of sanctions that, that followed it. I don't think that's, that's the case here anymore. And I think here we really are dealing with, you know, Pretty traditional demand side factors that, that hopefully we can we I want, can address. I want to talk a bit more uh, about Europe in a, in a minute or two, but uh, since we're talking about America's you know response to the pandemic, as far as providing support, because we we uh, I think actually we last podcasted uh, you and I in March of 2020, 
Uh, and you were you emphasized we have to you know defeat the virus and then support the economy and support companies so the economy can rebound. Did we do a good job supporting the economy, considering that uh, we had not experienced a pandemic like this um, in a hundred years, and we also have the memory of maybe doing too little at the start of the financial crisis. So those so our most recent sort of economic shock that remembers financial crisis. Uh, so did we do a good job supporting the economy, given sort of how we thought the world worked back then? Yeah, I think we did more than enough. So uh, if you look at the recovery, I think it's, it was it was quite quite stellar. In fact, right, we were basically back to trend uh, GDP late last year. Um, we're at full employment. I think those are so that's a, those are the outcomes you would you would have hoped for. I think what we did not do correctly just on the fiscal policy slash legislative side. I think there we we overdid it, and in part that was born out of necessity, but I think a lot of the programs were too generous and not targeted enough. Uh, so I think the uh, checks, UI, and grant to state and local governments were too generous. I think the PPP program was not targeted enough. I think, And I think there were relatively straightforward ways to, to, to see at the time of decision-making that, uh, that they were not appropriately sized or uh, targeted. And I think there were relatively easy ways to change them and make them more appropriate to the, to the moment. But we certainly, uh, you know, in a sense, rose to the challenge of dealing right. with that original negative shock, right? We got over that, I think, way better than anyone uh, predicted at the time. To what extent, when they were talking about, you know, especially the, the, um, the American Rescue Plan, there seemed to be a sense that that the American economy was sort of inflation-proof, that we had had low inflation for a long time, we had low interest rates for a long time, and almost no matter what we did, that was going to be the case forever. And therefore, people who said, well, this could be inflationary or this could result in a big, you know, and then a big Fed response, they were kind of like, you're trapped in the 1970s. You know, that's, that's not a problem we worry about anymore. Did that, do you think that played into what policymakers were thinking about, that they just didn't fear that kind of outcome anymore? Because it's been so long since we had experienced it. So I think the, the outcome that that line of criticism predicted, which would be one of, of, of uh, negative growth, overshooting Fed, we, we're not quite there yet, right? So I think for now, the problem has been that the Fed undershot in, in, in 2021. Um, I, I don't think that's what the people who were delivering that line of criticism uh, were concerned about right? They thought the Fed is going to overreact. Hmm. Maybe that'll happen now, but that's not what that's not what happened. Um, and so, you know, on some level, I think it was reasonable to think if we're going overboard with, with fiscal policy a little bit, then the Fed will just tighten a little faster. Right. But I think because of all the, and I do think people underestimated this a little bit, because of everything else that was going on, the Fed just didn't respond as aggressively as it, as it should have, and maybe as it would have if if everything else in the economy had been more normalized, if we hadn't had the supply chain issues, you know, hang, the hangover from, from COVID, more Ukraine, et cetera. So it, I think that's how I would put it. I don't think the typical concern back then, which is you're going to overdo it and the Fed's going to respond by tightening and they're going to do it too fast, I don't think that that's happened. Right. Has the Fed done a good job handling from the start of the pandemic until now? Or is it impossible to answer that question until we see 
what kind of soft landing, hard landing, immaculate disinflation, whatever, and that we're the story's not over. So until we see how it finishes, do they stick that landing? We can't really judge that. Well, the, the inflation target is two percent. <laughs> inflation is much higher. <laughs> it's so, that so in that sense, so but you have made a decision. Uh, the I think the Fed was essential to the initial crisis response. Right. I think that was very good. I think they probably should have tightened a little faster last year, you know, and then maybe inflation would be a little lower now. Um, on the other hand, they have not destroyed the labor market yet, which is good. And so there are, I think, elements that speak in favor and, and against the way they've they've gone about their business. But I think uh, on balance, I think the initial crisis response was good enough that that probably outweighs the mistakes from last year. Um, but, you know, as you're saying, I think the results are – not, not entirely clear yet, and I think the jury's still out. Europe seems to be in a worse situation than the United States mm-hmm. right now, economically. Uh, and that is and that is in great part due to energy. Am I correct? That's right. The, 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 the Russian government, led by Vladimir Putin, yes. invaded Ukraine, independent nation. Yes. Um, and and uh, that has had uh, a number of effects, including significant economic effects. Russia is a big supplier of, or was until recently, a big supplier of natural gas to to Europe, and that uh, that situation has changed. <laughs> and so now energy prices are much higher. Uh, abruptly, has it changed Europe. abruptly? And when I say much higher, I really mean much higher. So in in in, a, in some countries, energy prices are more than a hundred percent higher than they were um, just uh, a few months ago. And so as a result, you see really double-digit inflation in a number of countries. Double-digiting inflation that is really supply-side driven, right? So there, you can't, right, that's the monetary uh, authority, I don't think, could have foreseen that. I think Europe really is just materially worse off. And so their real incomes are lower because they no longer have access to this cheap natural gas uh, from Russia. And so that that is just a completely different situation. That's Europe is just paying the, the price uh, for, for Putin's uh, war of aggression. That's very different, I think, from a macro policy mix mistake, like you, like you may argue, uh, U.S. policy makers made. In in the case of the United States, um, if there's high inflation, the Fed will the Fed will react. Maybe it'll overreact. Maybe it just doesn't bring down inflation, throws us into a recession. It's a business cycle. But like, how does it end for Europe? I mean, they need to come up with you know, well, so a you different know, source of cheap energy. That seems like a very long-term thing. Well, or not. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's that long-term, but they, the, so in Europe, the, you know how the central bankers and the macroeconomists, they like to say they, that central banks have to see through the supply-side shocks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a little, um, as, the, as they say in the humanities, a little under-theorized. <laughs> like for example, if you, even, if it's, even if inflation is caused by a supply-side shock, you can still... Uh, worry that it'll affect inflation expectations, right? right. The, the people are going to adjust their weight setting, et cetera. And so I do think that can have, that can cause longer-term uh, price stability issues. Um, we've seen that uh, there is political pressure, too, to address these high levels of inflation and raise rates in response, even if you maybe don't fully believe there's an aggregate demand issue or if you're worried about the, the expectations channel. And so we've seen the ECB raise rates. We've seen um, the Bank of England uh, maybe belatedly uh, raise rates. And, you know, as that happens, as you see rates go up, even though, you know, demand isn't in stellar shape to begin with, then you can 
you can start getting into it really into into trouble, right? Where you add macroeconomic pain to the just real income shock from the lack of lower energy. You saw in the in the UK that there were implications for for pension funds that I don't think macro policymakers had had necessarily uh, thought about. And so I do think it's a it's a it's not as easy as just saying, look, we're poor now. We're going to have to find other sources of energy, though. Of course, that's that's important too. But they, there are, I think, there on the, there are some fine-tuned solutions you have to find. On the cheap energy side of things, because you're saying look through the shock, but you can't look through the shock if that's the new reality, right? It's not a shock. Yeah, that's that's right. just how that's it right. is. Yeah, that's right. And so, but that's unsatisfying, I think, to, to a lot of politicians, right? right. They they say, no, why, you know, why aren't you raising rates? And you know, they'll make the shock go away. I don't think that works. Um, at the same time, the shock can also impact inflation expectations, so you may want to address it for that reason. Um, the uh, the the other aspect of the response, the energy response, I think there we've we've seen some movement. Of course, we've seen uh, negotiations with other potential sources of natural gas. We've seen more willingness now to consider expanding uh, your. Much beloved. I'm, I'm nodding my, I'm not, I'm nodding my head at, at, at the, at nuclear, the nuclear renaissance yeah, you're, yeah. you're suggesting. That's right. Um, and, of course, you know, a lot of European countries have been very focused on transitioning toward uh, solar, wind energy, et cetera. And so I think it will speed up all of those efforts. Um, there, are, uh, there, there have been places where coal plants have been reopened. The Netherlands, for a little while, considered returning to drilling for natural gas in the North Sea, despite the earthquakes it's caused over the past few years that I, I think has now, I think the decision has now been made not to not to go down that route. So really, I think nuclear energy and then faster transition to to uh, other uh, renewables, I think is really the the, the path forward. Right. Um, of course, it's not going to come in time for the, for the winter, right? So for now, what you get is some countries are, I think, doing the right thing. They're leaving energy prices as they are, and, and providing cash support to low-income households right. to make it through this difficult period. Uh, other countries are capping consumer uh, energy prices at the consumer end, which I think is really the opposite of what you want to do, because, right? because you want to have that price signal so people reduce their usage as much as possible, uh, which I think is actually reasonably feasible in, in a lot of places with you know temperate climates, even, even during the winter. Mm-hmm. Right, where you can reduce the your temperature at home by a few degrees, and that shaves off uh, quite a bit from energy usage. Usage you also want to uh, keep those price signals in place so that you know so that different uh, businesses know you know which operations are still worthwhile engaging mm-hmm. in under the new constraints, and so you know that that that's going to be part of the of the response as well. And of course, higher energy prices. Of a, for energy of a certain kind should, in principle, make it more attractive to produce energy of other kinds. I don't know. I, I worry that those price signals in many cases are very muted for the, on the producer end, but, but that would be the other mechanism in which the, the shock can be dampened a little bit. It's uh, from a recent Bloomberg column by the economist Tyler uh, Cowen. Uh-huh. Um, and it goes a little like this. Uh, the old narrative was simple. Per capita incomes in the U.S. might be 30% higher or more, but Western European lifestyles are less stressful and more relaxing. European healthcare systems also superior. But now much of Western Europe, dependent on gas supplies from the East, faces serious questions about how it will get through to the winter, and it's not just high prices. The stress about the future availability of energy belies one of the fundamental motivations behind the social welfare state, 
to make the citizenry feel secure and taken care of. Geopolitics have also added to these problems. As the world emerges from its current chaos, it's increasingly obvious that the U.S. has pulled away from the pack. Do you agree with that or do you disagree that the U.S. now is it is clearly a superior system than the cozier European variety? I mean, obviously, as someone who has voted with his feet to move from Europe. You were born America, in the Netherlands. I find it difficult to disagree with that sentiment in general, but yes. I do think that kind of overstates the case perhaps a little bit. This is more of a matter of degree than of, um, than of type. Um, I think the U.S. on the energy front has has a, it's certainly in a better current condition. I, but I, I think this probably underestimates a little bit how rapidly uh, European countries will will get used to this new normal. Um, that you know they'll roll out nuclear energy and other sources of energy. Um, you know they've been buying more natural gas from from America, uh, among other things. And so I, I think this this underestimates a little bit how how rapidly that adjustment will will proceed. I don't think it's going to be the case that uh, European households are going to be 20% poorer in real terms five years from now than they were half a year mm-hmm. ago. That seems uh, uh, incorrect. Uh, one more thing about Europe. When I heard all these sanctions against the Russian economy, I guess I expected the Russian economy to utterly collapse. It sort of hasn't, right? Well, there. so it's I mean, certainly doing worse than, than, than predicted. Uh, Russia, of course, is a pretty big country, right? So there's a lot of internal activity. I think you'd expect these sanctions to, uh, depending on the, on the type of sanction we're talking about, I think you'd expect them to have a gradual impact mostly, right? So what, what matters most, I would say, is what is Russia able to import? Right? Their, their exports, uh, first of all, are useless if they can't import things. And secondly, their exports actually held up really well for, for a long period, of, for, for the first few months of the war, because... Uh, their their revenue from exports, which in large part consists of oil and gas, actually went up. Right? And so then what matters is the restriction of what they can import. And there, many of the effects are going to be fairly, fairly gradual, right? It's a bunch of luxury goods uh, and then machinery and parts of machinery and the like, and computer equipment. Um, but, you know, a lot of those are in the durable goods category. And so there you would expect the results to be gradual. Um, same for the impact of the sanctions on their military performance. You expect it to be relatively gradual. Now, I don't know what share of their, I think, pretty dramatic military underperformance can be attributed to the sanctions, but surely it's some of it. Uh, and so I, I do think that people who expected an immediate destruction of the Russian economy just didn't really understand the, the mechanisms through which these, these effects would take place. I think if, if there's, you know, I think the Biden administration in general has done a very good job. I think if there's one thing that they probably overdid a bit at the beginning of the war and the and the sanctions response. They were very focused on the exchange rate. Uh, you know, it dropped pretty dramatically at first. Uh, but I, I think that that's, that didn't reflect, I think, the true state of the Russian economy. I think it reflected more the fact that the uh, exchange rate is going to be a completely managed one, really just on some level set by, by the Russian central bank because there's no, like, international market for for rubles anymore and so i think that was that was a bit of a mistake and i think shaped expectations in an unrealistic way then finally uh more on the so that's right these are sort of that on the sort of broad-based sanctions front then when it comes to individual sanctions um i think those have been a little more scattershot with 
countries not harmonizing their individual sanctions well enough, right, where the EU will sanction someone, but Japan doesn't, the U.S. doesn't, the U.K. doesn't. Um, and, and so I think that, that, that needs some work. But, of course, we've seen some high-profile actions against uh, Russian officials, Russian oligarchs, and I, I think that's important both because it makes it uh, less attractive to, to be part of that regime. Um, it also, I think, serves as a deterrent toward, toward other people in other countries with, with similar designs. Is the U.S. in a good fisc- long-term fiscal position right now? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think it is. It has uh, made significant social insurance commitments that uh, come at a cost that will escalate over time, and I don't think we uh, have dealt with figuring out how to either make that escalating cost disappear or how to, how to fund the escalating cost if we wanted to fund it uh, in a particularly um, a foresightful manner. Um, so I think the answer is not very great fiscal shape. On the other hand, you know, issue the bonds, people buy them. And so that indicates at least some level of confidence. Do you find the uh, Biden administration's case for a student loan bailout compelling? I do not find it very compelling. Um, it uh, Certainly the specific grounds on which it has justified the bailout Public health emergency; they, those seem those seem ludicrous. Um, more generally, I think it's you know the you know the the concerns about this. It's a giveaway to relatively high income folks. I think the best justification is probably that it um, helps many people from family backgrounds that are more modest. Uh, it's not obvious why this would be the way to reach those folks, as opposed to a program that makes uh, support not contingent on your educational history. Um, you know, you could just, if you're worried about people with less wealth, then you could, you know, you could address that directly, right? This right. seems like a weird way to go about it. Um, but of the set of arguments that they brought to the table, I think that's the best argument. Certainly better than saying, no, no, this is a way to combat COVID. That's a bit like when we, when, when we, when first the Trump administration and the Biden administration decided to abolish the right to asylum to deal with COVID. It's just insane. You know, completely unrelated. Industrial policy, uh, it's a big topic, but I'm going to ask you a brief question. I think most economists would say they think it's a good idea that some, that a public good is investing in sort of basic research. Do you think we should do anything more than that? Should we invest, should we pick certain technologies that in Washington they think are promising and, and uh, fund research for that or, and, and maybe give money to, cut, to, to start up companies and, so, I mean, I think it's there. There is basic research. Of right. course, there are, I think, certain industries that we need, that we rely on for our national defense. I think those you can also make a case for industrial right. policy. Uh, then the there's a sliding scale, I think, from basic research to, to more applied research. Right? There's work that... that you're I swear that sliding scale, DARPA. where do you become uncomfortable? Well, you know, pretty quick. I don't know. We now, I believe we're investing like a trillion dollars in chips, even though now there's a chips glut. Uh, that seems unnecessary. Yeah. That's not a big confidence builder in our ability to do this. If that, no, it's very, that day, I mean, they, they, very unfortunate timing. On the other hand, right. remember when President Obama founded Tesla? Uh, that was, that's been very successful. You mean Solyndra? 
both at the same time. <laughs> See, there you are. Pros and cons. <laughs> Pros and Sometimes cons. you're lucky. I think generally you're unlucky. Certainly the chips oh. don't inspire a ton of confidence. If we if if we look at another country and they have a particular policy, you know that that we think, oh, that seems to be working. We should bring it over here. Maybe it's something with the tax code. Maybe it's some social program. What would you caution someone to think about before saying, oh, it works there. We should do it here. It well, works in, in Great Britain. In general, I'd or it say works in Sweden. Or these policies are embedded in a broader social context, right? So, for example, you there's always a lot of enthusiasm here in the U.S. for apprentice programs because they work so well in Germany and Switzerland. Yeah, but their entire economies are organized around these apprenticeship programs. So that's you can't just copy one element. Uh, that's what I would say. You have to think of you know does it does this specific policy make sense in the American context the way it does in its original context? If one believes that a key to American prosperity in the future is continuing to attract people to this country who are highly talented and also just highly motivated people who want to make their lives better you know they may not all have you know phds and you know particle physics or something but they want to make if you think like those people are important how do we evaluate the u.s economy going forward or do you think we're going to keep accepting those people those people will still want to come here i mean i'm not super optimistic i think there is we've seen we've now been through years and years of anti-immigration politics i don't see it getting any better if we wanted to yeah. admit highly motivated uh, immigrants, I don't think anyone is more motivated than people who walked here from Venezuela. Somehow we're you know, rejecting them or sending them to Martha's Vineyard as like a joke. Um, that doesn't that doesn't. Does it matter how accepting people think we are? As long if if someone thinks they can get a job here, uh, or they can get a, uh, or they can become a professor here, does it matter? Like the environment, whether they think it's, you know, you know, we're less accepting if they can still, you know, get a job. Well, I think so. I would say two things. One, uh, the I think the places in the U.S. where most immigrants actually end up are very welcoming to immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, really, all of America's big cities are. Even in states you may think of as, as red states, right? Houston and Dallas and Austin are very uh, pro-immigrant environments. The second thing I'd say is, and this is, I think, more true on the to hire uh, more highly educated uh, educated side of things. If you don't see a path toward uh, permanent residence, I think that that will uh, keep people from from coming. And of course, that's uh, that path has has is pretty narrow. It's even narrower for people from of, of certain national origins because there are per country caps and how many Greek cards are issued in a certain year. And so, for example, for Indian immigrants, it's very difficult. To see that path, and so that I think is concerning that there's no, no obvious legal path to 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 permanent residence. And finally, was the is the premise of my question correct? That immigration is important. I'm very. I know you, you journalist types think this is your, your leading questions, <laughs> um, but I, I think uh, the answer is yes. I think there are significant economic benefits. I think there are significant humanitarian benefits for for large classes of immigrants. I think uh, immigrants are indispensable to America's uh, higher education industry, to many of its high-tech industries, um, for its for its national security. So I think, yes, the premise to your question was, was correct this time. Stan, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Thank you, Jim.